Welcome everyone to the Optimal Performance Podcast. My name is Sean McCormick. I'm a life coach, performance coach, wellness entrepreneur, and it's my pleasure to bring to you every single week the world's leaders in the field of performance so that you can live your life at its most optimal level. Plus, cutting edge ideas so that you can stay ahead of the curve in an ever-changing world. Let's dig right in. Oh, what's up, everybody? Welcome back to another episode of the Optimal Performance Podcast. I'm your host, Sean McCormick. If you find this amazing episode that is deep and cellular and fascinating in its scientific breath, uh, please share it with your friends. If you have science nerds in your life, you're going to want to share this episode with them. On today's episode, we are joined by Dr. John Leaf. And Dr. John Leaf is a uh, neuropsychiatrist with a BA in mathematics from Yale University and an MD from Harvard Medical School. Uh, for many years, in addition to his clinical work, Dr. Leaf has been researching the question of where mind can be found in nature. And that is the specific area that we're diving into uh, with his new book, which is called The Secret Language of Cells, What Biological Conversations Tell Us About the Brain-Body Connection, the Future of Medicine, and Life Itself. In this fascinating episode, I use that word a lot, but it's true. Uh, I really enjoyed this this one. This is very deeply scientific. This is uh, technical, but he wrote the book in a way to make it accessible, to break down really highly complex ideas to make them uh, accessible to you. We talk about the connection between meditation and immunity. We talk about the connection between the gut cells and immune cells. We talk about mTOR and how it keeps track of the nutrients that we have and the nutrients that we need. We talk about uh, how antioxidants work. One thing that we really uh, that was really interesting to me was how we talked about how acupuncture works, uh, scientifically proving that it stimulates T cells that activate the communication through neurons to various organs. We talk about practical tips to increase cellular health right away. We talk about the vagus nerve, and this is th- this is the future of of, of science and medicine. Uh, we also talk about consciousness. You know, if cells are communicating between each other from one tip of the body to the other tip of the body, then what does that say about consciousness itself? How does this communication, what is it, what's the implications about where consciousness comes from? What it's, what's it like to be a cell? Just a really, really cool, cool episode. And uh, I just let him go for, for, for large parts of it. He, I really enjoyed his, his approach, the way that he breaks things down to, in a really uh, accessible way. As always, if you enjoy this, please, if you if you listen every single week uh, or if you're brand new, please jump in, tell me your thoughts, go to Apple Podcasts and drop me a review and um, let me know what you're thinking. You know, a quick update on the Virtual Biohacking Assistant. The Virtual Biohacking Assistant is now in its second pilot program. Some of you have received emails from, from me already and have uh, gone through the VBA process. Others of you will be invited to that very shortly. I really love your feedback. I'm excited to roll this out at a a greater level because this goes along with the future of how we can increase our health by knowing what we need and making changes to our life. Uh, The virtual biohacking assistant is going to deliver you for free, anonymously, ideas that are specific, resources that are specific to your wants and needs. And uh, there's nothing like it on the planet, and I'm really excited to bring it to you. You know, my collaborator on this, Dr. Caden Patel, is uh, is a is a brilliant Harvard doctor himself, and he has done uh, a lot of really important work in medicine, uh, and especially 
in natural language processing and AI. And yeah, it's super awesome. I'm really excited to, to show it. Uh, wanted to let you know, if you are uh, if you're curious about where to learn more about some of these podcast episodes, I'm going to be consolidating. Um, so where you can go for now is seanmccormick.com. It's easy to remember, S-E-A-N, McCormick.com. You can learn about the work that I do as a coach. More and more of you have, have reached out recently uh, to uh, to hire me as a coach, and I, and I really appreciate that. I'm happy to help you. I'm here for you. Uh, every single week, I want to bring more and more really high-quality information that's useful to you in your life. And in order to do that, in order to bring high level of content, uh, it's really important that, uh, that, that this information gets shared. You know, um, it's, it's free to you. The ads that I read help supplement um, uh, the, the income from this that I can turn around and put back into the episode, you know, hiring virtual assistants and, and being effective in, the, in the, my delivery of this podcast every single week. So I invite you to support these sponsors. Uh, Bell Campo is brand new. Uh, Element is brand new. Uh, Fume, uh, they're new, and I really invite you to take my word for it. I've researched this stuff really extensively, and I believe in these products that uh, that I do uh, that I do ads for, and they're amazing people. I work really closely with them. So, uh, on that note, before we jump into the episode, I want to say thank you to Element. This episode is brought to you by Element. It's a delicious, sugar-free, keto-friendly electrolyte drink mix. We need salt, and we need electrolytes. If you've been paleo, keto, or low carb for a while, if you have construction going on in your house, that's just the way life is. <laughs> uh, if you have been keto for a while, then oftentimes you can get a little bit ornery in the afternoon, and oftentimes that's associated with a lack of electrolytes. For the fellas, if you wake up to pee in the middle of the night every single night, there is a very strong chance that you are low in electrolytes. You're dehydrated, and your body is trying to flush um, while you're sleeping and it's a pain for those of you guys that wake up every morning at 3 a.m. You know what I'm talking about. That's where element saves the day. Uh, I add this to my reverse osmosis water. And as soon as I get uh, a glass of these amazing flavors down, I feel better. I feel satiated. I feel focused. I feel full of energy and, um, they've got really, really great flavors. Uh, citrus salt, lemon habanero. It's a really high quality product. And it's a product that you can trust. You know, it's, it's been formulated by Rob Wolf and his collaborators. So you know that it's legit. You know it doesn't have any sugar in it, unlike some of the other electrolyte drinks like sports drinks that are just packed with gnarly sugar and colorants and all sorts of nastiness. Uh, Element is used by Marine units, NFL teams, NBA uh, teams, and, um, you know, people like Tim Ferriss and Rob Wolf that are, are really high-achieving people, much like you guys that listen every single week. Um, they've made this amazing offer. All you got to do is go to drinklmnt.com forward slash OP, pay the $5 for shipping, and they will send you a sample pack of seven different packets of the electrolyte drink mix, the Element drink mix. Um, all you got to do is pay for shipping. It's actually a really sweet offer. They're so confident that you're going to love it that uh, they're willing to send you product for just five bucks to get you to try it. Uh, this is especially good for people who are not supplementing their diet with uh, with minerals. So check it out. Go to drinklmnt.com forward slash OP. All right, everybody, on to the episode. And we're here with Dr. John Leaf. He, he's a neuropsychiatrist. Uh, his blog is Searching for the Mind, and he's the author of The Secret Language of Cells. Dr. Leaf, thank you for joining me today on the Optimal Performance Podcast. Well, thank you. I'm delighted to be here. 
Well, I, I would love to start with this first question about the book because the book is fascinating to me. And as as I, as the you know silly goose that I am up here in the Pacific Northwest, just trying to help people perform at their highest level, um, I'm I'm definitely increasingly interested in in cells because it's becoming clear to me and through some of the guests that I've had is that that really is the foundation of health. Um, we have to, we have, we, now we know we can figure out what's going on in the cells, um, through very, to a certain extent with, uh, with various diagnostics and tests and so forth. And that's going to be the future of medicine is to, is to figure out what's going on in the cells and, and, um, and help them perform optimally. So the way that you've broken up the book is the body, the brain, microbe communication and conversations inside cells. And I'm curious, uh, if you would please highlight, sort of give us a, an overview of what those four sections are and tell me which sections you had to omit. Like what stuff did you had to, did you have to leave out of the book? Uh, can I show the book? Absolutely, please. So this is the book, The Secret Language of Cells. Um, so, you know, I, you have to, it's all connected is the theme of the book. Everything's, everything's talking to everything. Every cell talks to the others. And I show very conclusively that there's no separation between the immune system and the brain, for example, and the body cells in the brain. So conversations are wide ranging. Uh, and that's the surprise is that uh, the capillary cell is calling for the immune cell from the bone marrow and then tells it how to get to the infection as it climbs through the blood vessels. And uh, the immune cell is telling the brain cell to make us sit, feel sick so we'll lie down and not expend too much energy. And so the communication is is wide ranging. I'll go through you know some of that communication later. But, but the idea, I had to start somewhere. So I divided it. Um, into, uh, you know, everyone knows there's a brain and we assume it's separate uh, and it is a little bit separate, but it actually, the theme of the book is that it isn't at all separate. It's all one uh, brain. Actually, I make the point that the body is the brain. There, there, there's no, uh, I talk about the wired brain and the uh, wireless brain and the wireless brain are the immune cells that are wandering around everywhere. And meanwhile, sending signals back and forth to the brain, uh, perhaps by going into the cerebral spinal fluid or just uh, from neurons uh, sideways into the tissues. Um, so, so I had to divide it up, but you'll notice in the book, I, there's a lot of back and forth. So in this section on uh, the body, I talk about immune cells and blood vessel cells, cancer, uh, gut, the gut, the skin. These are examples. And they do talk about how they talk to the brain. And then when I go to the brain section, I talk about each of the cells, the three supportive cells, the, the guardian cell and the neuron, and also how they are talking to each other, but also talking to the blood vessel cells, et cetera. Uh, microbes is an easy distinction, although the truth is microbes are very much part of us and uh, they... Uh, the microbes in the gut have uh, 300 times more genes than our cells. So they, and the viruses have thousands of times more than that. So they make all kinds of chemicals hundreds of times more than we do in the gut. And some of them are very important. Some are vitamins, some are digestive things, some, but some are signals that go into the blood, to the brain, various places. 
Um, so microbes, and they also travel in the body uh, at times, um, microbes are uh, surprisingly important. And the, the fundamental reason is, is very simple, but no one thinks about it. The reason why microbes can be so important, I mean, you now read about microbes everywhere, you know, microbes, this and that. Uh, but the reason that that's happening is because they speak the same language as our cells. So because they can talk, to each other and to ourselves, and that they can then intercept our communications. They become part of the conversation with deciding what kind of immune, they're, they're the friendly microbes that decide what kind of immune cells. There are the unfriendly microbes that we battle with using our friendly microbes and even friendly viruses. Um, and, uh, and then I went deeper into the cell, uh, which is perhaps a little more complicated, but it involves, uh, the same kind of thing occurs in the cell that occurs out of the cell. In other words, compartments of the cells are talking to each other about issues of the cell, like how do you keep the proteins going? How do you deal with proteins that are misfolded? How do you deal with a crisis? Uh, and and how do you how do you send uh, materials along? You know, cells are tiny. It's it's us compared to Mount Everest. I mean, they're very tiny, and yet one cell goes from the spinal cord to the toe, and that's three feet long. So you have one cell that is three feet long, and it has to send material along that axon. It's like, I, I liken it to walking along the wall of China. Um, you have to, and, and they have these um, highways, uh, microtubules with, uh, with motors that bring uh, mitochondrion down there, that bring this and uh, bring proteins down there, ribosomes down there. So um, the inside of the cell is fascinating as well. And, and I talk about how there are signals to send the proper molecule to the proper um, section. The one overriding thing is that cells are very dynamic. They're not simple. They're very complicated and they're constantly working and moving and changing. And the overall lesson in biology, including cells, is you use it or lose it. In other words, it's an active energy flow is what is happening in the cells. And the whole of life is based upon this energy flow that in the cells is like a brain, but the brain, instead of neurons, are molecules. And they include the energy molecules, the information molecules, the structural molecules, and there's this uh, communication going on. So anyway, I mean, that's, that's a little overview. Of yeah, that's, that's helpful. That does break it down. The body, the brain, microbe communication, conversations inside cells. You know, I think highlighting what you said about understanding how microbes work, we're becoming more and more familiar with the importance of gut health and the gut-brain connection. And yeah. um, I'm fascinated by that. Uh, I, I'm, I just, uh, I'm curious though, what, what, uh, was there like another section that you considered including, was there, was there like a, was there a portion or a, a way that you were thinking about structuring it? Cause I, I know that you're, uh, this is such, I'm such a simpleton, but I'm trying to, <laughs> I'm trying to ask these big questions to get these big answers. Like what, what did you have to leave out of this? I guess is my oh, question. Good, good question. It's a very interesting question. Um, actually no one's asked me that question, but, um, so some, some editor suggested that I organize it based upon the types of signals. 
So, for example, many signals are uh, chemicals that are secreted into the tissues and sent. Um, there are signals at the end of axons where the electricity goes along the axon and then it secretes a, a little sac with a molecule in it. That's a signal. Uh, many are just floating through the body. There are electrical signals. There are uh, sacs. Uh, cancers really like these uh, sacs. They put all kinds of molecules, even uh, transform mitochondria, and they transform them to friends. There are nanotubes, little tiny nanotubes in between cells. But I thought that that wasn't a good way to organize it ultimately because the vast majority of what we know are the molecules being secreted. There's some about the others. Um, and I wanted more to talk about sort of the action, what's happening, like what does this cell tell this cell? What does this cell tell this cell as opposed to the molecules? So I eliminated all the jargon, which uh, was my goal. My goal was to explain the story like a panoramic view that anyone could understand as opposed to, uh, I, I viewed my blog as people would say as a doctor, like what languages do you speak? And I would say I speak English, molecular biology, uh, genetics, um, you know, uh, virology. I, I speak certain uh, languages that are gobbledygook. If you go into the journals, no one can understand them. They're just names of receptors and uh, molecules and genes. And uh, it's, it's hopelessly complicated. Uh, so I would labor over a, like a, a review article that no one could possibly understand if you weren't in that field. And I would basically translate it into English. And I did that for 10 years every week. I would translate an article. And that was my, my blog was basically it was these scientific articles. Um, but I wanted and my blog posts are a little more technical, I think, in some parts. I wanted this to be understandable to anyone and yet important to to professionals as well. In other words, to have enough information. And the way I did that was to eliminate the names of all the signals. I left the names of the cells, but I avoided the genes and the signals and, and, and things like that. So that is stuff that has been left out, which I don't think detracts. And, and I have a bibliography at the end of each chapter, which people, where if people want to read the articles, they can. But the truth is, most people can't even get these articles because they're in the scientific journals that no one's allowed to read. So it, it, it would only help academics. Uh, but I tried to make it a seamless visual panoramic view of what cells are doing so that anyone can understand how amazingly complicated it is and how amazingly dynamic it is. Um, I think dynamic is, is, is a major word in describing that world. Yeah, well, you, you did it. I mean, uh, as I was reading through it, and I didn't read the whole thing, but I skimmed the sections that were really interesting to me. That's kind of how I read everything. And um, the, the, the pictures, the photos that you include as well, like the little, like, what does this little MRSA thing look like? All these little balls kind of stacked on top of each other. And it does read really, really clearly. And if you'd have had to describe <laughs> the communication, the, 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 the signals that they send, you're right, it probably would have made it kind of unreadable for, for the layperson. Um, but you, you, you have some, you have some, a couple of forwards, a couple of uh, reviews from some, some, from some names that a lot of people would know. Could you share with me just really quick, a couple of those names, um, that gave you reviews and gave you little blurbs about the book? You mentioned Andrew Weil and a couple of others. 
Yeah, Andrew Weil said that it's a new paradigm for health and disease. And what he means by that is instead of thinking about most people, when you think of what is life, well, they say, oh, it's a cell and the cell can reproduce and has metabolism. That's what the definition is. But now I think we have to add to the definition of life itself that these cells are intelligent and are talking to each other and are communicating and that the basis of every all the action is not just that they're there, but that they're talking and communicating. So that's the new paradigm. Um, and it means that in a way things are not uh, simpler, they're more complicated because if like it used to be if you were going to talk about the kidney cell, you just look at kidney cells, but now you have to look at cells all over the body, in the bone, in the blood, in the immune, here, there, and everywhere, and they're talking about what's happening. I mean, no one would have suspected that capillary cells tell stem cells what to do. No one would have suspected that platelets um, are uh, first responders and are intelligent and are calling for help and are doing all kinds of things in their, on their own. Platelets do much more than plug. Uh, it, everything is more complicated, but the beauty of it is the new science is that you really know where to look now for treatments. And there's a lot of new treatments. So for example, you, you look at the natural communication that occurs between a cancer cell and a microbe or a cancer and a virus. And you can then capitalize on that natural communication to make a treatment using the virus to attack, uh, the cancer cell using, uh, finding out how the blood vessel cell, how the, um, white blood cells are talking to each other in order to eliminate chronic in inflammation and chronic infection. So it, it, it focuses on where we can get treatments. And that's what Andy Weil meant by that. Um, another notable person who wrote a great thing about it is Ray Kurzweil, the famous uh, genius inventor who invented really all kinds of things, optical character recognition, uh, uh, sampling, uh, the Kurzweil piano, uh, the blind reading machine. Anyway, he, he's an AI genius working as the head AI guy for Google now. But um, he wrote that uh, it's a must read to understand modern biology and advanced medical science. But then he went further and said, and of course, he's interested in what is consciousness and that this raises the question, is this intelligent communication um, does it have anything to do with uh, the emergence of consciousness in uh, in life? So that I was glad he said that. But <laughs> so, <laughs> then there's some other people that maybe aren't as famous. Mark Beckoff is a very famous in the animal world. Um, I, I had the honor of writing an article about him. I was writing a lot of articles about insects, brains and how smart animals are. And we wrote an article about birds, lizards, and bees, and how these small brains are very intelligent. And Mark Beckoff wrote a wonderful thing about it, uh, saying it's also very important for viruses. Uh, I have sections on viruses, by the way. And uh, so that's a whole nother topic we could talk about because maybe I should just mention what, what I mean by that. Well, 30 years ago, we discovered that microbes, um, send signals to each other. But we couldn't really develop it because science wasn't at the point where we could follow little molecules, in the, you know, that tiny. But now science is so advanced. It's just amazing. I often say that 
most of 90% of all the science has been done in the last year. I mean, there's so much science going on and I try to keep up. It's hard to keep up, but, um, it's only now that these, that these conversations of microbes are useful to us. And it's so important in figuring out the ones we will use for probiotics, for example, the ones that, uh, our, our, our friends, the ones that are our enemies and why are that, why are they our enemies? Um, and, uh, but viruses were always very mysterious. I was writing about viruses and a lot of, I have articles throughout the years about viruses. I have, you know, on HIV, on Ebola as they came out. And they're so interesting because they have such complicated lifestyles and they evade this and they evade this and they go here and they do this and they do that. They do a million things with a tiny, uh, you know, just nine genes or eight genes, a couple of proteins. They're able to combat the action in this enormously complicated cell. So three years ago, the first viral signal was found where a virus was talking to its comrades about whether they should destroy their uh, host bacteria or not. So that was kind of mind blowing. I expected it because I knew that viruses are part of the conversation, but there was no evidence of that until three years ago. And then in the last three years, there's been an enormous amount of research uh, 15 whole languages among viruses. So viruses are talking also, and they're talking to microbes. And viruses are a mixed bag. I mean, that's a whole subject, but they're not all bad. We have viruses in, in our virus genes, in our genes, that are absolutely essential. For example, the placenta is based upon a virus gene uh, from a retrovirus. Uh, it's called syncytium. And this was a virus gene, a virus molecule that was used to to bind to a cell and, and attach. And it, it, because we sort of took over that molecule, we're able to have a placenta attached. We have many genes in us. In fact, 8% of our DNA useful genes are from old, old ancient viruses. And 50% of our DNA are what's called jumping genes, which are like virus-like particles that move around and the, the cell has to control them. Also, there are viruses that just help us, like in the gut. There's a group of friendly bacteria. There's now a cloud of viruses that help uh, the friendly bacteria, and they actually fight against enemy bacteria that are attacking the gut cell. Anyway, viruses are a whole other subject, but they are they joined the conversation officially three years ago, and now we're learning a lot about that, and I find that fascinating. I find that fascinating too. Holy cow! I'm trying to I'm trying to keep up with you and and all the details. I mean, the fact that three years ago they confirmed that viruses communicate with each other. That's oh, that's fascinating. You know, I can't help. I, I keep I, I'm I keep trying to like delay the consciousness topic because I do want to go there with you. Um, I I do want to go there, but I don't want to jump the gun. But um, I'm. I, I, I want to circle back around to consciousness. I want to central back to. I want to circle back to a couple of other topics. Um, <laughs> oh, it's so cool. Uh, part of the book you talk about the uh, the communication between trees and and the, the microbial network that happens in the ground that, that interconnects trees. And because I live in the woods too, uh, and I'm a huge fan of of fungi uh, in general for lots of different reasons. Um, uh, I wonder if there, if, if could you connect the dots? Uh, maybe just explain that concept on how trees talk to each other and how how we are how are we like trees? Are we are we talking together with our own microbes in you know kissing or sharing food or you know are we on our are we emitting 
molecules that are that are talking. Does our fungi talk to does like do my does my kids' fungi talk to my fungi <laughs> that I have in my body? I just would love to see the, to hear you kind of talk through the connection between um, trees and microbes and and how that works for humans too. Yeah, so this is a whole huge subject. I've written more about this on my website. Um, I've written a lot about plant intelligence. And um, the editor, one of the editors thought that it was sort of off in its own world and almost didn't want to include that chapter. And I demanded to include it. I said, it's so significant. And it was the only example I was giving of the amazing communication going on. So I chose the... the, uh, Plants need nitrogen and they can't get it by themselves. They don't have the enzymes to fix it, they call it, from the, uh, from, uh, they take raw nitrogen and they fix it in a way that can be used by the cells. Uh, they have to have nitrogen. So the way they get nitrogen, I mean, they, some of it is through uh, lightning or a little bit through uh, uh, some earth processes. But a lot of it for our important foods are through microbes and both uh, bacteria and fun fungi um, produce, uh, become friends with the plant. And uh, there's about 100 signals. One signals, it's in the near the root. So the root is like the brain of the cell, actually. And the root sends out a signal and the microbe answers. And if they, they jive, they get closer together and then they're testing each other. Is this really a microbe we can trust? And if it is a microbe that the plant can trust after 100 back and forths, they then open up a, um, it's funny, I call it the yellow brick road because it's, um, it's a vibrating, oscillating uh, calcium uh, channel that uh, uh, becomes a, a highway for the microbe to follow into the cell where with bacteria, they then build a huge thing that you can see called the nodule. Uh, uh, you know, it's large, it's visible, you know, it's inches in size and it's a huge factory with many, many bacteria and they, they then live their lives there and they and they grow, uh, they fix nitrogen that the plant needs and the plant gives the microbes, the, uh, sugar and other good stuff. Now with fungi, it's, they're tiny and they're only, uh, they're almost microscopic. Uh, it's just like a cellular level, uh, little nitrogen factory. So, this leads you to, so that communication is going on. And um, over the years, it gradually became clear that plants have a lot of communication. They, um, they will, for example, um, send signals to relatives if something bad is happening, like some kind of disease, uh, they will let them know. Uh, they can uh, communicate uh, by building a little bump to knock uh, insects off of them. They can plan ahead to create a very powerful chemical uh, to stop the fungi in the morning dew. So they plan that it'll happen like uh, 20 minutes before dawn. Uh, when the morning dew occurs, they're going to build this uh, potent chemical that could kill them, uh, but it's used right at the right moment. So they're able to plan ahead. They have uh, planning skills, they know time, they, uh, a lot of signals, 40 different uh, types of communications. They probably can hear also the, the, the vibration that's been tested as well. But then if you go further into it, you realize that throughout the forest, there are these um, wires of fungi, fungus wires, hyphae, 
that really go between every plant in the forest. And what's been discovered is that um, the fungi are a, a wire, an internet between all the trees, both for information and signaling, but also for nutrients. And uh, so uh, a tree, for example, can uh, decide that this isn't good and turn it off, or they can uh, juice it and be sending signals back and forth. So this led scientists to question uh, what is going on with fun fungus. And it turns out that in evolution, plants could not come out of the sea onto land without fungus. In other words, the fungus proceeded and actually created the environment where plants could arise outside of the ocean. And they were, from the beginning, essential. You know I mean, it's not like an add-on. This is like part of the way plants have always lived on the earth. Um, at least uh, on the dry land. We, we don't know as much about the ocean. The ocean is very complicated to study. But um, so today we know that these fungus wires are completely vital to now how much we know they communicate. We know they send signals. How much? I mean, there's a lot of talk about how much trees talk to each other or not. I, I stick with pure science as opposed to speculation. Um, Although I live with beech trees, I'm here in the woods with my favorite beech trees. So I have my own crazy ideas about communication of trees. But the fact of the matter is we don't know exactly what they're saying to each other. And, but we do know they are communicating. And what we do know is it's, it's, it's about um, infections, it's about danger, it's about nutrients. Uh, that much we know uh, it, it is happening. Now, in terms of people, I have one article in my blog called Are Fungus the Dominant Life Form on Earth? Because there are just so many different fungus and there's so many types and shapes and varieties, more than any other species, really, other than viruses. Of course, viruses are the, are the true dominant life form. But other than viruses, um, fungus are uh, possibly. But we're just beginning to learn about fungus in, in humans. Uh, really, we don't know a lot about it, and, and it's really important. There's now a couple of fungus, um, you know, like these resistant bacteria, very dangerous bacteria. There are now a couple of really dangerous fungus, and so we're forced to really get into it and study uh, fungus in, in humans. So um, it's an incomplete answer, but I can't say how much your fungus and your loved one's funguses are talking, uh, fungi are talking. That's okay. <laughs> it's all right to not have the answer about how my fungus is talking to my family's fungus. Maybe, maybe give, give it another 10 years and maybe we'll, we'll have some, some more ideas about that. Um, one quick message from one of our sponsors and then right back into the episode. This episode of the OPP is brought to you by Fume. Fume is an essential oil inhaler. This cool little wood pipe with a cotton core that's soaked with essential oils and you use it as an inhaler. How does it work? Why does it work? Why would you do that? Well, the science behind fume is that air enters the fume and fills with beneficial properties of the essential oil. You inhale it and then your olfactory system sends the beneficial signals straight to your brain. Other beneficial properties from essential oils are carried to the rest of your body through your bloodstream. You know, you know that lavender helps you relax. You might not know that you can use black pepper to stop smoking. And 
when we're talking about things like allergies, there are some compounds that help with allergy season like tea tree, lemon, basil, peppermint. These sorts of compounds help you get through seasonal allergies, which are happening at my house right now. So there's all these different ways that you can use this fume inhaler to increase your performance. I've been using peppermint as a pre-workout supplement. I'll just take a couple of hits uh, from the inhaler and then I'll do my X3 workout. The cotton cores come in lots and lots of different flavors for different ways you would want to use this essential oil power to increase performance. Also, if you have like a oral fixation and you like to have something in your hand, you like to puff on stuff, this is the thing. Uh, this is really cool. I like using it while I'm working just to kind of puff on it from time to time. Head over to Fume Essential, that's F-U-M Essential.com and use the code OPP and get 10% off. Okay, back to the episode. I, I would like to talk a little bit about, there's a couple of things that you mentioned before we turn the microphones on, um, but I'd love to talk a little bit about meditation and immunity because I think that's fascinating. There's Everybody knows that they should be meditating Everybody, um, it's clear. I've talked about it, you know, a dozen times plus on this on this podcast with experts and device <coughs> manufacturers. <coughs> Pardon me. Could you walk us through the connection between? Because here's the thing: I'm conflicted because I don't want to spend the whole podcast talking about um, the importance of, of an immune system and and SARS-CoV-2 and uh, but. I am curious about the connection between meditation and immunity. Yeah. So can you walk us through that a little bit? Well, it's actually a very interesting story. Uh, of course, meditation is an interesting story. Uh, uh, you know, it, it, for the mind's sake, it's wonderful. And it, it, there, there are two activities constantly going on. There's focus and there's free association. And we vibrate between these two uh, all the time. And meditation creates a better, both a better focus and a better free association. So you actually strengthen creativity and you strengthen focus. But but that's another story. That's the story of, of, of meditations. But so it's been obvious why through the vagus nerve, when you meditate, your heart slows down and your gut slows down and um, your breathing slows down. But it hasn't been clear how meditation could possibly affect immunity. That's what's mysterious. And the interesting thing from the book is the uh, the new science of cell signaling has created a whole new awareness of what's called neuroimmune uh, conversations, neuroimmune circuits. So, for example, instead of circuits being just neurons or even just neurons, astrocytes and other brain cells, you have circuits that are just like brain circuits, but they include T cells, they include uh, gut cells, they include skin cells, they include even microbes. So you have cells in a circuit talking, and those are called neuroimmune. Um, so there are things called neuroimmune reflexes as well. Uh, let, let me just go back one step, okay? So you have the immune and the brain talking to each other. On one hand, you have the immune system sending signals to the brain, and one of the signals they send is to give us the sick feeling. You're ill. I want the sick feeling, so we'll lie down and take care of ourselves, okay? When we feel better, when the infection is gone, the T cell sends the neuron a signal, okay, go back to normal thinking. No more sick feeling. Um, new brain cells are created in the memory center of, the, of everyone, the adults. A small number, but they're very significant. They're involved in 
new memories, making new memories, and in taking old memories and redoing, remodeling old memories, which is one way you can help with traumatic events. But the point is that that's that's another subject we should talk about. But the T cell sends a signal to make these new brain cells uh, during acute stress, but during chronic stress, it goes down. So you get this burst of energy, but then you have less and less ability to think with chronic stress. With depression, it goes down, and when it's better, it goes up. So you have, in this direction, the immune cells telling brain cells important things. In the other direction, the neurons tell immune cells where the type of inflammation uh, in this part of the body, and they can trigger uh, all kinds of immune uh, signals through the immune cells. So this is one example of that, where it was never known that the same vagus that is calming during meditation and lowering the breathing and the heart rate also in another area, even further down the line, is affecting immunity and is sending signals, the cytokines they're called, these signals from immune cells and boosting immunity. But it's also been learned that these neuroimmune reflexes, it's sort of like an animal is in the woods and he does certain things that are reflect because a reflex to create more immunity. Well, one of the things humans do is this meditation and it's conditioned like Pavlov's dog. So the more you meditate, the more the immunity is affected. And uh, so that is a, um, one of these neuroimmune uh, reflexes is involved in the meditation. Now let me just go on because acupuncture is part of this story. Uh, no one has known how acupuncture works. And it's been logical to think that it's because of energy flows. So you're hitting an area like you would think a blood vessel or a nerve, which are some kind of energy flow. It turns out that isn't it. Because when you hit an acupuncture point, there's no blood vessel and there's no nerve there. But what they found recently uh, is you stimulate a particular acupuncture point in the wrist that affects uh, the kidney in the completely other part of the body. And what you're actually doing is they're able to see this because of the new science. They see that the stimulation of that acupuncture needle stimulates a T cell, an immune cell that's sitting there in the, in, in the tissue. That T cell becomes activated and moves and then goes near a neuron and sends a signal to the neuron, which then signals signal through, through the nervous system to the kidney. So that the... Um, so acupuncture works through these neuroimmune circuits. The acupuncture immune works through that. And now it's been discovered that there's a lot of pain syndromes uh, that are also um, part of these complicated s- circuits. So some, some of the pain syndromes have like 15 cells involved in a circuit with 100 different chemicals going around on a synapse. They include multiple neurons, multiple T cells, microglia, astrocytes, uh, skin cells, uh, very, very complicated. Some of this, uh, I have a chapter in the book in the brain section on pain and inflammation where I cover the neuroimmune reflexes because it's a very significant part of this conversation that we're just learning about. Wow. Holy cow. Uh, what was the study or what was the, I mean, how did we learn that, that acupuncture uh, functioned in this way and how recent was it? Um, 
three years ago, two to three years ago, uh, someone was doing studies on electric acupuncture, you know, needles with some electricity. And what they found is that they had triggered a T cell. And then they went further and actually did the research on, uh, on the T cell, uh, uh, on the acupuncture point. Um, I mean, I'm not saying this is the only way acupuncture works, but it is a way that it works. And no, there's been no other explanation that makes any sense. And it is very logical based upon the new neuroimmune conversations. Awesome. Uh, I I have yet to do an episode, and I've wanted to for a while, but I've, I've yet to do an episode dedicated to the vagus nerve. And so I would love to talk a little bit more about the, the, the importance of the vagus nerve and maybe some practical exercises for people. You know, I've heard, you know, cold cold exposure for the vagus nerve, humming, literally like mm, humming for the vagus nerve. Can you tell us a little bit about the importance of the vagus nerve, what it does, what it regulates, how it helps, and some ways that we can um, strengthen it? Well, the vagus nerve is a huge nerve. It's, you know, there's the brain, the central brain, and then there's the peripheral brain. In the peripheral brain, it's almost half of it. In other words, so you have two huge uh, systems that are complementary. One is called the sympathetic and the parasympathetic, which don't make any sense. The words, uh, it's nothing to do with sympathy. Um, and so the words are illogical and confusing, but basically the sympathetic system is a stimulating system. How it's called sympathetic. It, I have no idea. Anyway, let, let me jump in real quick because I I, I I I have a good way of remembering which is which. So okay. it, within the sympathetic nervous system, you are sympathetic to things happening, right? So you have a response to external stimuli, or you have an, a response okay. to your 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 nervous system is saying, "Hey, there's something happening," and now I'm responding to it. Versus the parasympathetic, which is not sympathetic. Which is listen to me telling you this is so ridiculous, oh, but it's, it's <laughs> but the parasympathetic is I am not responding to external stimuli. I'm not responding. I am not responding to external stimuli. I'm not sympathetic to what's going on around me. I'm just doing blood flow and rest and digestion. So sorry, keep going. Yeah. So um, no, that's great. It's, you're absolutely right. So uh, the sympathetic is stimulating. It's responding. Flight or uh, fight. Uh, uh, get going, heart beating, uh, you know, more breathing. And then the parasympathetic is relax the gut, relax the heart, relax the breathing, um, calm down. And uh, it affects literally, you know, almost most of the body. So you have this yin and yang going on. And um, things that are meditative affect the uh, the vagus nerve but as i said it's only recently it's been clear that the vagus also sends signals and controls immunity as well which is uh, kind of amazing um there are whole books on on this and what to do uh it's a complicated subject you know they have textbooks where you see every single organ and it does the eye this way and it does uh, every single gland in one direction or or another direction. I don't think people need to memorize all that. I think they need to 
just realize that doing meditative practices, which really can be, you know, all kinds of things. It could be martial arts. It could be uh, walking in the woods. It could be gardening. It could be things that are meditative. And studies have shown, by the way, that walking in the woods and nature has is is mentally just like meditation. It has the same effect on the brain. Um, the those meditative behaviors are operating through the vagus nerve, at least. I mean, there's more to it because they also involve what's called the default mode network, which is the part of the brain that is, it's a complicated subject. It actually is now five different centers. It's not one. And it, it, it supposedly it's what our identity is because it's what, um, what, it's going on in the brain when we're supposedly doing nothing. We're just there and then what is happening. And those centers are called the default mode network. And they involve that thing that I was mentioning of the focus and free association, the fluctuation between focus and free association, which is uh, vital to everything. Uh, let me give you one little example. So um, you give someone a really complicated analysis for a business, for a job, an engineering problem, something like that. And then you take, you know, you expose them to this and they have to figure out something important and you have one person working on it. And then you take a second person and you have them go wash the dishes. Um, the person who washes the dishes is far more successful at coming to the conclusion because there's a break in the, it's like daydreaming. It's, it's, it's a break in the action, which then creates more free association. It allows the brain to free associate and come up with the conclusion. So for example, learning, learning and sleep and daydreaming are very tied in. We learn and then we consolidate the learning at night. So napping can be extremely helpful to break a log jam, a creative log jam. Children, babies when they learn something they then nap and that's how they do it 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 shows that all-nighters are a bad idea in other words you learn and then you sleep and you learn and you sleep and during the dreaming you're learning procedural memory which is like how to do things example is usually given as riding bicycles uh versus explicit memory which is details in the deep sleep uh, but all parts of sleep consolidate the memory, which are part of these new cells that are being made. So um, and uh, let me just throw in this thing about trauma, trauma, because that's important for people. So what, what happens is that when we re-remember something, so something happens and it's a memory. But now I bring up that memory and I re-remember it. Well, what happens is that a new brain cell is used for the re-remembering. It doesn't replace the other one. It just is a new one. It's stronger. It's new. It's younger. It has more connections. And we associate whatever we do. So if we're in a negative spiral, we'll associate more negativity and make matters worse. Whereas if we are smart and use this reconsolidation to help us deal with trauma, we then consciously associate loving uh, some self-worth things, some things of, of uh, love of people, uh, something associated with the terrible memory. And then we re-remember it in slight, a slightly different way. And it's slightly less traumatic and we can keep redoing that. And this involves now that new brain cell creating a new circuit uh, eventually 
overtakes the old one. The old one kind of fades away and the new one becomes stronger. So that's a natural part of it's called consolidation of memory, reconsolidation of memory. And um, it involves these new brain cells that are stimulated by the immune, uh, by the T cell. The T cells telling the, the brain to make these new brain cells. So uh, anyway, it's part of that complicated story. Awesome, man. I, I'm I, now I'm now I'm conscious of time because there's so many different directions I want to go. But I do want to make for sure. I want to make time to talk about uh, the mind and consciousness, uh, the brain and the mind. Uh, to start us off, could you um, wade into the waters of m- m- comparing or th- how do you personally think about the brain and the mind? Yeah. So. That was the whole purpose of my website 10 years ago, searching for the mind, because as a neuroscientist and a neuropsychiatrist, I knew all the research about the brain, the human brain. And uh, it was clear that there was no center for consciousness. And it was clear that there's no center that binds everything together into our subjective experience. So this thing we all know and, and accept, which scientists Sometimes don't. So some scientists want to have you believe that it's not real. Uh, our subjective experience is real because we all know that it's real. And uh, that's part of the mind. The mind is further than that because it also involves uh, science and culture and books and inter- interchange through society. So it, it became clear to me it was more than than the brain. But most scientists associate uh, the brain with the mind. And my book says, well, if you're going to do that, you can't say the brain, you have to include all the body cells. So you have to associate the mind with the entire body because uh, there's no separation. The, 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 the full body is the brain in reality. But in, in my understanding, so we don't understand, science has no idea what consciousness is. We have no idea what intelligence is. We have no idea what um, mind is. We have no idea, no, zero. And so I began to study animal brains as a way to see, well, what do they know? And, I, and so I have many articles on how extraordinarily intelligent animals are. I mean, they recently found that a four-month-old raven is as smart as a chimp. Um, birds are highly intelligent creatures. But look at um, ants and bees. I mean, ants l- learn can learn directions in 50 different ways uh, and they can learn new ways to do that. They figure out themselves. I'm not talking about the hive. I'm talking about the individual ant. And then you have the bee who does symbolic language, understands abstractions, understands how to self-medicate the hive, understands five miles of, of different flowers and how, which are the best ones and not. And that's a hopelessly complicated math problem. They figure it all out. So, But then I found that microbes have a brain also that they, what, what is the, the brain of the microbe? The single cell takes in multiple sensory things, makes decisions, um, has complicated issues going on about needing this kind of food and that kind of food, makes to sit discussions with other uh, groups. So the cell is a brain also. Um, and so the question is, in the conclusion, I just sort of bring up the topic. Does this mean that um, the cellular is conscious or, or not? And that's a big argument. If you say that, you'll get blasted by most scientists, uh, even though they don't have any idea what mind is. Um, the, 
So I didn't address it, but I did say that it's clear that information transfer is the key to life and the key to cells. So there is information transfer going on. Now, if we call that consciousness or mind, or, it's all semantics, really, until we have some idea of what it is. Now, does the cellular... So we have a brain in a cell. We have a brain in cells talking to all the other cells. We have a brain in uh, the body communicating throughout all the organs. We have a brain uh, in our brain talking to all the other brains through the internet. And so you have multiple layers of uh, brains that are networks of information and communication all going on simultaneously at different uh, hierarchies. Uh, are they all connected? Well, I believe so, but there's no, I can't prove that. And, and I, I made the commitment to stay within proven uh, biochemical science from journals, from the top journals. Well, maybe I'll change, maybe I'll lose that commitment at some point in the future on my next book. But uh, at this point, I've stayed with science and um, what we see are these levels of consciousness that are clearly all functioning uh, in different ways, but clearly have something to do with mind. I don't know if that answers anything. Yeah, that's good. That yeah, we're, now we're, we're starting to get there a little bit. You know, um, now I'm thinking about why Ray Kurzweil would in, would enjoy the book so much and the the Internet of Things, the, the the Internet acting as a as the mycelium to keep us all connected. Um, uh, I want to, I want to get weirder. <laughs> Let's get weirder. Um, what one, one in, in a conversation about consciousness, uh, I heard, uh, I'm sure you're familiar with Sam Harris and his work and, and talking about consciousness. And he was, he was, makes this, this, um, argument about what it's like to be a bat and, um, what, what, you know, does a, does a bat, if you can think of what it's like to be a chair, like maybe not what it's like to be an ant uh, harder, but what it's like to be a bat. And one of the things that you said very early in our conversation of what it's like to be a cell and what we're beginning to talk about now is the consciousness of cells. The fact that they can not only communicate, but they have responses and they have, um, um, ways of, 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 taking in external stimuli and then, you know, making, making a response. And so I guess, I don't, I don't even know if there's a question in here. It's just, it's the, the, what it's like to be a bat thing just kind of continues to ring in my ear when I think about consciousness. And so, you know, what it's like to be a cell kind of is just a continuation of that. There's one, one thing I can add to this. Um, in the book, the very last chapter is about a molecule. So I go down smaller and smaller, you have the body, the brain, the microbes, and then inside the cell are the compartments. Some we know, we know the mitochondrion, we know the nucleus, uh, the endoplasmic reticulum, the axon, uh, the dendrite, these are all well known. So then I talk about the very last chapter was a little bit of a probe into what you're talking about. Um, it's, it's, about a molecule only, it's called mTOR. And this molecule is amazing. It's an enzyme and er everything in cells run through enzymes, uh, glomping onto another enzyme and changing it in some way and creating reactions. And enzymes are the action, the way the action occurs in, inside cells. 
Well, this one particular molecule is able to keep track of all the nutrients, like how much protein we need. Do we have enough ribosomes? How much amino acids do we have? How much fat do we have? How much sugar do we have? This one molecule is setting up a complex of molecules where it monitors like a cell, like a person is monitoring everything and making decisions about this life and death decisions about our lives. So I moved into a radical area that no one really notices, I think, um, uh, because, but I, I was leaning towards the future for towards my next book, where is that molecule intelligent? Not, not just a cell, not just a mitochondrion, which is really a bacteria, but a molecule, which is tiny, and it's a tiny molecule. Is how, how can a molecule be smart? Um, and how can a molecule monitor multiple things of life and death urgency and keep track of it and then call the amount of ribosomes you need and call the amount of this you need? So that chapter is pretty interesting if you want to glance. It's only about three, four pages, but that leads us into the question of does the intelligence go even deeper? Does it go into molecules and atoms? And again, it's speculation. So there's no evidence beyond that. And so what I was going to think of doing at that point is going on in another book about multiple smaller and smaller things that show intelligence. Um, so I'm collecting things, but um, so it comes up with what would you speculate my, where is mind in the universe is what my website was all about. And should I, I mean, I'll speculate for you, but you'll have to report me to the, uh, the scientists, uh, for, uh, speculation. But I, I always make clear when it's a speculation as opposed to many scientists that say this multiverse is real when there's absolutely zero evidence uh, for it. Um, so this is pure speculation. But in the universe, we have where we're at. We're a certain size. And if you go from us, you know, up to Mount Everest, it's like 10 orders of magnitude. Orders of magnitude is 10 times, 10 times, 100 times, 1,000 times. You know, so those are orders of magnitude. So if you get larger and larger and larger, the universe is 24 orders of magnitudes from what we're, we're, we're at. If you go 10 times larger, 10 times, 10 times, it gets pretty large. Uh, so it's a 10 with 24 zeros after it, okay? But then if you go with, from us, smaller, and you go smaller, 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 it's again 24 orders of magnitude to, to quarks, to, to the part of the atom that's the smallest thing we're ever gonna know. Like we're never gonna, physically, we can't figure out a way to know anything below that. That's where the string theory is, is, is. So, so then you have 24 and 24, and we're sort of right in the middle of that, which is very strange. I have no explanation for that. But then if you go from that bottommost level where the quantum ether is uh, jiggling around and, um, and you, you go down smaller and smaller and smaller, you come to a theoretical thing called the Planck size, 
which PLA, and this was the great German physicist who worked with Einstein at that time. And just because of the nature of light and matter and things that are too complicated um, for any of us to understand, uh, the Planck size is, is, comes out of that as a constant. And that's another 30 orders of magnitude smaller. So you have 30 more magnitude, larger than, you know, the entire universe in terms of size. We, you have four, many orders of magnitude for which we have no idea what's going on. And it's all just energy soup as far as we know, you know, things, uh, particles changing to each other. So for me, it's pretty clear that in that 40, there could be uh, mental structures, there could be thought forms, there could be whatever the hell consciousness is and mind is, could be part of that energy soup that exists in huge, huge uh, area. So when I think about and then it grows into the, the larger and larger and through atoms, into molecules, into cells and, and all that. Um, so to me, mind and consciousness is a natural part of, of matter and energy in the universe. It's just, an, I don't know if it's another, I mean, energy is everything, right? Because energy and matter are the same. And energy is light, and energy is this, that, and the other. So it, we don't have to use another word. But information, mind, whatever, is part of of uh, physics. You know, uh, mind is a physics physics qu quantity. To me, it's part of the universe. It's just part of uh, matter. It's part of energy. It exists at every level. And we happen to be at one level. You and I. Whereas there's another level of the internet, right? There's another level of the world, of all these thousands, you know, billions of people. Uh, what is that consciousness? And is there a bigger one? Uh, who, you know, who knows? I don't know. There definitely are smaller ones. But so anyway, that's how I fit it in uh, a cosmos. I'd love to talk a little bit about senescent cells because I've just become aware of this. Um, and I did a senolytics protocol uh, with a previous guest and inventor who, who's created a, pr a protocol to rid the body of, uh, of senescent cells. So, um, it's, so it's a brand new, bright, shiny topic for me. Um, what, what, are your, what are your thoughts of the – I mean obviously as we age, we accumulate these senescent cells. We need them when we're younger and as we age, we, we no longer need them. But we, we know that they recruit more. Um, you know, the zombie cells make more zombie cells, and they emit these chemicals. Um, I don't. I didn't. I didn't notice, or I, or maybe you talk about senescent cells in the book. But I would love to get your idea on um, the role of senescent cells. Are they uh, expendable, and should we be concerned of uh, about getting rid of those senescent cells as we age? Well, part of the answer is we don't know enough to answer the question, but. Um, what we do know is that cells, there, there are two kinds of aging in cells. And one of them is a deliberate aging. Cells create a deliberate aging for cells that they want to have a short-lived life. So, for example, to avoid a scar in an area that they're healing or, you know, during a regeneration. Um, so the self, 
suicide of the cell is one way that cells age. So cells actually can decide to age. The other kind of aging is the long random process that includes um, a lot of uh, gradual breakdown of certain uh, cellular um, circuits and cellular processes, molecular circuits. And some people believe that, you know, the sirtuins or some molecules can uh, stop that. Um, I don't think it's totally clear that we can stop it. Um, take, a, take a neuron, okay? So we have a neuron and we're born with that neuron. And that neuron is one cell that creates a certain shape and it has a certain function. And every day of its life, there are thousands of signals that have to go on to maintain that shape and structure. It's very complicated structure. You know, we have axon here and dendrites here and a certain shape and a certain uh, fitting into a certain pattern. And the way that maintains is by cells deliberately sending signals and rebuilding and constantly keeping that shape. And this goes on for a hundred years in one cell. Um, one cell lives the whole life of the human because we're only making new cells in those memory centers and in the nose. But one other little place, but uh, in the... Uh, there's one other spot they found, but it's tiny. So there's no new brain cells, no new neurons. There are new astrocytes and microglia, but no new neurons. Uh, and that one cell lives 100, 120 years. So it's very hard for it to keep up with those demands for so long. And especially since multiple other parts of the body who are replaced with cells, you know, most of the other organs are replaced, um, they also deteriorate in various ways. So aging is really a lot of random deterioration that builds and grows. And whether, I mean, maybe we'll be able to stop it one day when we learn enough uh, from each of these types, like how does a kidney cell age, how does a heart cell age, how does a neuron age, each is going to be a different story. Um, there are natural things that occur, like mitochondrion uh, get old. They talk about the uh, oxidation products uh, in mitochondria being very significant in aging. And so that's why antioxidants can be good, although you can overdo antioxidants because we need oxidation to occur at a certain level. There are actually signals for the cell about whether it should live or die. Um, so it, it's a very complicated story that we're just unearthing. Um, so I don't think the story is in on how much um, they call them reactive oxygen species you need and how much are bad. Uh, some of it's bad, clearly, and some of it, and, and there's a lot written about mitochondrial and uh, taking Q10 and taking riboflavin and all the different vitamins that are part of the mitochondrial uh, process, which is really wonderfully complicated. I, I've spent a lot of time recently reading about ATP 
And uh, I'm really into uh, trying to figure out uh, ATP and photosynthesis right now. It's really uh, unbelievably complicated. I mean, this is totally crazy thought, but ju just the major molecule for energy is ATP. You're familiar with that probably, which is adenosine triphosphate. But if you get rid of two of the phosphates, adenosine monophosphate is a letter in DNA. So you have the energy particle and the information particle are the, exactly the same molecule, which is very strange. I find that very unusual. Um, however, that's not answering your, your question, but it's part of how do we get so much ATP? How do we, I mean, everything is based on ATP. ATP is the cell. It, it runs on ATP. And the origination of life had to be ATP. I mean, it had to, that's where life starts. And the ATP molecule that makes ATP is one of the most ancient molecules there is. So it goes way, way back into archaea and, uh, and um, bacteria. Anyway, but to answer your question, I don't want to insult anyone, but the story is not in yet how to deal with these sirtuins and these other particles that seem to have something to do with uh, senescent cells and in animal models seems to slow it and stop it. So I'm, I'm, I'm not saying it doesn't necessarily work, but I don't think we know enough in humans and humans, by the way, are not mice. So one thing we have to realize is how different mice, we use mice because it's so convenient and they are similar to us in so many ways, but um, there actually are significant differences and uh, not everything proven in mice translates to humans. So we'll see. I'm all for it. I'm, I, I'm all for getting rid of senescence. Knowing what you know about cellular health, how cells talk to each other, I wonder if you can give us all some practical tips, uh, things we can do, things we can eat that will help our cellular health and, and help the communication between cells. So cells need energy. They need to get rid of waste products. They need to have a flow of energy through it functioning smoothly. And the kinds of uh, lifestyle behaviors we have affect the cell's ability to do that. So clearly food is a big one. And um, I mean, the main thing is to not eat chemicals and processed foods that cells then have to get rid of and deal with. The main thing is to stay with natural foods as much as possible without chemicals and processing, because that is what uh, slows down everything and makes the cells uh, more complicated. Uh, the other thing that's important is that the kind of food we eat attracts different microbes. So for example, one of the reasons why red meat isn't great is not necessarily the red meat, but because it attracts a bacteria that eats carnitine from the red meat and makes a chemical called TMA goes into the liver, is transformed to TMAO, which then creates atherosclerotic heart disease. So that has nothing to do with meat. It has to do with a microbe that likes meat and it always attract, is attracted by meat. So the kind of food we eat attracts the microbes, which then create either good or bad products for us. Clearly, uh, berries have magical properties for uh, the aging process and all the uh, antioxidant. But there's so many more factors in natural foods and fruits and berries 
that we have no, like we understand one or two out of thousands. So we really may not have hit any of the relevant ones yet. So that's why eating the natural foods is far better than taking um, supplements uh, and chemicals. Uh, so that's one thing. Sleep, we already mentioned. Uh, napping is very important. Sleep consolidates learning. But even more important, when we sleep, it was discovered fairly recently that there's a process that cleans the brain. And what happens is neurons shrink in half and they double the area in between. And there's a flow, uh, a liquid flow from artery to vein through the brain that takes out misfolded proteins, which are what cause dementia. So sleep is vital to clean out the misfolded proteins. And that, that's the probable association of lack of sleep with dementia is through that. Um, the other very important thing is using the brain. What we have to realize is the, the way we use our brain changes it. What we think about, what we do, changes the brain. So um, it's called neuroplasticity. And there's a thing called brain-wide neuroplasticity that is uh, where much of the brain is used for an activity which has a unique effect in allowing the brain to, to create new abilities. And these uh, wide-ranging effects are done through activities that include certain uh, characteristics. One is that they're, that they're meaningful to you. They're not just rote, not just doing an exercise, but it's a meaningful activity. It involves physical movement. It involves uh, attention. It involves motivation. It involves emotion. It involves, can involve rhythm, like with music. Uh, music, playing music is one of the best neuroplastic brain-wide because you're involved with a group, you're doing something physically, you're learning intellectually, the words have meaning, the interaction with the people have meaning, the entire, you're dancing and tapping, all of that creates a neuroplasticity which is unique. Um, so let me just give you an example of what I'm talking about. So you're about to do a high jump and you visualize the high jump and you then are 30% better with your high jump if you sit and visualize before. But while you're visualizing that high jump, you go like this with your hands, involving the body movement as part of the brain circuit in the visualization increases it to 45%. So that's showing that a wider circuit, Another example is with children. You do a study where you're teaching kids arithmetic. And in one group, you just teach them. In the other group, you point to the blackboard for each thing. Pointing increases by 30% the learning because it involves a movement, watching a movement. It involves a visual. So you're enlarging the brain circuit by including meaningful physical movement, attention, motivation. So what is a good activity? Well, you know, you start with meditation and then you add whatever. You add gardening, you add uh, uh, reading, you add a, a business activity that's meaningful, uh, that helps the immune system also. Um, you know, there, there's a million uh, good activities. Uh, so I think, I'm trying to think. So those are some of the main 
Oh, and the reconsolidation of memory to get rid of, to, to lessen the uh, traumatic experiences is, is, can be done consciously, where you rememory thing and you add to it uh, the recent experiences of love, the positive things that have happened since then, and you just sort of let it go, and later you remember it. You just sort of work on it a little bit at a time. Oh, that's so helpful. You covered so many different areas. I know that people are going to get a lot out of that. And, you know, if you want to, you can you can choose to go a little bit deeper into one of those. You can do your research and, and figure out which can, which can be actionable. Uh, before we take this home and I answer the last question, where can people find you? Where can they buy the book? Where can they read your blog? Give us all your vitals. Well, the book we've already seen is The Secret Language of Cells. It's available on all, all booksellers, you know, Amazon, Barnes & Noble, everywhere that they sell books, it's available. It's on a Kindle edition and a hardcover edition. Um, my Twitter handle is JohnLeafMD. So it's J-O-N-L-I-E-F-F-M-D. And there's a constant, I, I post every day, there's a constant... A series of articles that I've written and that I've the recent science is on there and on Facebook Facebook is searching for the mind and the website is both of those things also johnleafmd.com and searchingforthemind.com are both uh, the website which has many different articles you can search through the there's a table of contents but also a search function excellent thank you for that uh, okay so this this is a, a nice question that I that I like to include um, specifically to kind of keep people on their toes here for the for the last question and then we'll take this thing home. Um, it's a fill in the blank question, so if you would fill in the blank and you can elaborate as little or as much as you'd like. Um, this can be based on anything and everything that you know. Um, this doesn't have to be specific to to the to to the cells and and their language, but if you would please fill in the blank. Everyone would benefit from knowing. how to uh, breathe, how to meditate, how to uh, eat properly. Excellent, excellent. Uh, Dr. Leaf, thank you so much for your time today. Um, I learned a whole bunch and I know that everybody else listening uh, also learned a lot. Um, you should check out the book. Uh, it really is really well written. It's, it's, it's easy to follow. It takes this immense complexity and makes it digestible. And that's sort of my, that's sort of my claim to fame too, is to try to bring things into, uh, um, into a form where people can understand them and activate on them and, and change their lives. So, uh, I just want to say thank you for being a guest today on the optimal performance podcast. Well, it's been a great pleasure. Thank you very much. And that's that. Well, I think you're great. Oh, thank you.